Welcome to Living Untitled, a new podcast featuring conversations about the limitless optimism and possibilities in our untitled world. I'm your host, Justin Boone. In today's episode, I speak with playwright Diana Burbano, a Colombian immigrant, a punk rock playwright, an actor, teacher, and student of classical theater and its unique language. She's a teaching artist at South Coast Repertory and Breathe of Fire Latina Theater Ensemble. Her critically acclaimed, wickedly humorous, and at times gut-wrenching play, Ghosts of Bogota, examines themes of the immigrant experience, family secrets, religion, abuse, and belonging, and asks audiences to think about their own families, the original community, for each one of us. Audiences sort of expect a certain thing from a Latinx play. We're a lot more than tragedy porn. Theater helped Diana find her own agency, and now that she works off stage, she sees her role in part as advocate and champion of actors and performers, helping them to maintain their own voice and agency through the process of developing theater. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. <laughs> As am I. Theater has always just been something that I've been super passionate about my Dude. entire life. So I'd love to just sort of start there. Like, what got you into theater really in the first place? I really started sort of working professionally when I was 12 years old. Um, I got put into the theater because, as you can probably tell, I have a lisp, <laughs> which I've never... I, when I was really acting, I was much better about controlling it. But that's, that was literally why, to see to have me speak. So I came to this country when I was three. I spoke Spanish. I picked up English pretty fast, but it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't always perfect. And, and I still do, like, upside-down words and, and things that don't make sense. But, uh, you know, that's that's who I am. You know, Spanish was my first language. I actually started in children's musical theater. Oh, uh, I'm still friends with a ton of those people, too, which is fun. Um, and just doing all the traditional shows, you know, Guys and Dolls and Oklahoma and Brigadoon and, and uh, oh, my yes. God, it was so much fun. I'm also... Um, what we used to call like dyslexic and what learning disabled or whatever the term was back then. And because I didn't have the tools that I have now, I had kind of a hard time in school, but I loved acting. I mean, it's a it's a classic story. You, you just felt you belonged and mm. um, you had some agency because you could always control, like if you worked really, really hard and you had some, t I, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't the most talented actress, but I worked really hard. Like I wasn't a great dancer, but I played Anita and I played all these dance roles because I just set my little feet and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. <laughs> so, so it was a welcoming space for me. And especially because in children's theater, you don't get as typecast, right? People just mm. get to do whatever. I mean, I played Megan Brigadoon, which I never would get to do professionally. I, I always joke that professionally, I played all two of the Latino parts. You know, I played Anita in West Side Story. <laughs> and then I did um, in, in Kiss Me Kate, I played... Yes. Uh, you know, because she has dark hair, <laughs> Bianca. Yes. So yeah, yeah. I went to conservatory uh -huh. and I loved it. And I realized how much I loved language. I really became obsessed with Shakespeare and Chekhov and and Tom Stoppard is one of my yes. favorites. I'm just, I just became, I don't know. There was something about uh, all that language work, which I hadn't done before, that attracted me a lot. So I started really concentrating on my classical classical work and I went to school in Britain for classical theater and I really loved it. I've always loved it. Um, but you know, the problem is it doesn't necessarily translate to getting roles 
because you do get typecast. And I, yeah. I, I was pretty I was pretty typecast um, once I opened up professionally. So that mm. that always became a bit of a that was that was definitely um, a barrier to really enjoying the theater as much. You know, you use so many great words that are some of my favorite words <laughs> when you were talking about that feeling and why you enjoyed doing theater so much, Mm -hmm. particularly as a child, that feeling of sort of belonging, right, in that space, and the ability to sort of exercise agency and probably develop that and really understand that muscle for yourself in a really unique way. But then when you shift from that beautiful playground of a world that we all live in as children, or if we're fortunate enough to, as children, into a professional world, like you said, now you kind of lose, potentially, some of those things become compromised. It does. And I think the thing about being an actor is you are always at the mercy of other people, Mm. right? You don't have as much agency. And um, you don't, what you can do is you can do the best work you can. You can be really smart about your type. You can do the business side of the business and develop yourself, you know. But but that still doesn't mean you're going to get cast necessarily or you're going to get cast in the roles you want. I think it's a difficult thing for actors. That's why I always have so much sympathy for them in my work. Now that I'm lucky enough to give them jobs, I remember what it was like. And I think to myself, okay, these are the things I can do for you. We're going to collaborate. We're going to... If you really have something in the script that you need a question answered, well, let's talk about it. You know, I'm totally happy to do that because I remember what it was like in the room going, I don't get it. Can you please please somebody explain this to me and not feeling like I had the right to say that. And I think what was really surprising to me is how many actors that I uh, worked with who got it. Uh. I, I mean, that's always the fear is that nobody's going to get your weird brain, you know, <laughs> and especially because, you know, I do write some topics that are kind of kind of tough. And but I've had a lot of people say that was my story or I really mm. understand that um, I, I so connect with that. And that was special. That was really special. I remember my favorite, one of my favorite memories was I was putting up um, the premiere of Ghosts of Bogota Ah. up in the Bay Area. And I had recently just come, it was a really, (laughs) right before the pandemic, it was a really great time. I had just worked on a piece in staged reading. I was putting up a production. And I thought to myself, I've given jobs to like 30 Latin actors. Ah. Ah, that's so cool. And I even have a picture of me. I'm typing away and all the actors are standing behind me reading it out loud as we're kind of putting a scene together. I'm I'm getting goosebumps. But that was really special because uh, I just I love that idea of I'm creating work. What is representation sort of look like in this space? And like, why is it so important? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, one of the things that I always try to tell people is we're a lot more than tragedy porn Mm. (laughs) to be, you know, just to be blunt about it. I feel like a lot of audiences sort of expect a certain thing from a a Latinx play. Like Mm. it'll be a border play, Mm -hmm. you know, which is and these are beautiful plays. I'm certainly not putting them down. But but where you what I feel like is they're observing plays where people can really uh, see people suffer or see. Uh, I did a play about a beautiful play called La Ruta, which was about murdered and missing women in Juarez. Uh. 
a beautiful piece, but yeah. so tragic. And yeah. the thing that what happened was it felt like we were being watched like animals in a mm. zoo, as yeah. opposed to sometimes in the theater, the really beautiful thing is sort of it's a participatory. You yes. can feel the audience kind of buy in and then it's yes. more of a collaboration with the audience as opposed to being watched. Yes. Um, to me, representation means that you're seeing a story, more of the story, right? Like you're seeing, um, I mean, I write about middle-class Latinos. I write about people who are primatologists and I write about people who are showrunners and I write about, like I fantasize about this and so I put it on paper to show show people that we're not just this one perception you might have. We really have a wholeness. Yes. And I'm interested in that. I'm pretty interested in challenging the audience with the language. We'll talk, we'll talk about that. Because language <laughs> is a humongous barrier that people really, yes. like, if they don't understand any words of Spanish, they get upset. I was in a reading uh, at South Coast Repertory, and there was an, uh, literally, there was one phrase in Spanish. One phrase. Wow. And it was very contextual. One audience member stood up and said, I didn't understand anything. Mm. I thought it was one phrase. Wow. And really... And I thought, why? Uh, and so that's always a bit of a problem. And yeah. we always try to find access. I know a lot of writers who write sort of bilingually, they put subtitles up. Mm -hmm. I don't love subtitles. And sometimes in my work, I purposely write Spanish because I'm wanting that alienation that sometimes mm. like Spanish speakers feel. Right? Like we yes. feel a little bit alienated because we don't understand. Yes. So I just want to, I do want to push that envelope it's part of, of the discomfort. Tension. It's part of the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Discomfort. Exactly. What a good word for it. Exactly. Right. And discomfort is not always a bad thing. Discomfort exactly. can be such a valuable tool when you, you as a, as a playwright, right? As, a, as an artist, yes. discomfort is this wonderful tool for you to play with, to bring audiences in in a different way to sort of help them to seek meaning in that experience. Yes. And allow it to stick with them, allow it to resonate with them. Exactly. You go see Tom Stopper. We, I just saw La Leopoldstadt on Broadway. Yes. yes. It is very hard yes. to watch. It, yes. I'm not it's a beautifully acted piece, but you start it has that those moments of he's brilliant. It's 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 about a family, a uh, Jewish family in Austria and what they go through in the 20th century mm -hmm. and just the metaphor. He starts with a room full of beautiful this family, children and grandparents and he ends the play with three people and mm -hmm. those are the three people who are left from the family. And that is the ultimate in discomfort, yes. right? But you're left with a real understanding and a real um, a sense of empathy with this family and the, what they went through without without feeling like, oh, I feel really guilty or I, I'm, oh, that was an experience and now I just want to not. You, you want to take it home and think about it. For you as an artist trying to really challenge the work or just challenge the medium and channel, challenge the audience right. with the work that you create, what is that process like for you to navigate that? I write what I want to write. I, I really, I'm, I'm interested in um, a lot of things. I'm very mm. geeky, you know. <laughs> I think, I feel like if, if, if I can get the audience to buy in in the first couple of scenes, mm. then they'll buy into the rest of it. And I do that with humor. Even mm. when I hit really difficult topics, I try to really make it funny. Yeah. Um, because I feel like once you get people laughing, if you can get them laughing unexpectedly, you'll open something up and then yes. you can start, they'll start kind of like, oh, that's just like my family or, oh, I understand that. Or even if it's, oh, I don't understand that, but it's really funny. What is, what is that? To me, that's a, that's a great access point is, yes. is using the humor. And 
you know, I feel for some of my characters, they're fools. Like I write some really <laughs> messy women and I, I'm like, you see how messy this is? And she's complete. You can mock her. You can. Yeah. And I feel like that's good because it doesn't she's not a saint and she's not. Yeah. She's not anybody ideal. She's just a messy person. And, so, and she's real. She's yeah, relatable exactly. because of that. That's what I hope. That's yeah. what I hope that that because I think in every theater experience, a lot of the times people are sitting in the audience going, "Okay, impress me. Yes. Okay, show me," um, and and that's okay. That's okay. I'm happy to do it. I I I love it so much. I love the theater and I love the form of it. And I feel like I'm still learning, um, you know, what works and what how how to reach audiences. I've been pretty lucky that that I have had a lot of good access points with the audience. And even when I don't, I feel like that's okay. Like I said before, I like discomfort. I mean, yeah. if you go home mad and then you look something up on Google, yeah. I feel like I've done my job, <laughs> you know, or yeah. you're, you're like, oh, that's not true or whatever. Um, it's okay to be mad at the end of a play. It's really okay. I think uh, Jeremy O'Harris does that brilliantly. He did that brilliantly yeah. with Slave Play, which is a super controversial play, yes. but everybody's talking about it. Oh, absolutely. You couldn't stop talking about it. Right. I think what's interesting in that piece, and you've explored this, there's sort of this, is lineage the right language or, you know, looking at sort of like hereditary or looking at like complicated sort of mixed histories for individuals or cultures. Yes, yes. um, Where we're challenged with like sort of dueling um, identities in a sense. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I'm definitely not from here or from there. Yes. I mean, I feel American. I don't necessarily feel as Colombian until I go to Colombia. And then I realize that a lot of the mannerisms and a lot of the ways I am are very Colombian. I feel like that's that's accessible to a lot of people because you feel yes. like you're one thing and you're also another thing. And yes. you're one thing for one person and you're another thing for another person. And you have to sort of mask um so yeah, yeah, duality is a great word. Kenji Yoshino, he talks about this covering. Mm. That's the term that he uses. Oh, like wow. when you talk about mask, he, wonderful constitutional law professor, yeah. has a book on the topic uh, that's by that name, covering as well. And he, he identifies as both um, a Japanese American and he also identifies as a gay man. And it's interesting to explore that term covering mm-hmm. because. So much of it, we don't know mm-hmm. we're consciously doing when we cover in a situation. How you talk about it in the work that you create as a playwright and talking about wearing this mask and even your own experience of sort of looking at your own sort of cultural identity and confronting that in your work or exploring that in your work. I'm so curious in that process, how much of that has led you to sort of have these new challenging discoveries that maybe you're still trying to navigate or bring to life? Yeah, that's brilliant. And I love how you put that in. And I'm going to have to get that book because that- Definitely worth reading. It takes a lot of bravery to be uncovered. And it's about being safe, right? We do need to feel safe. So, um, and, and those of us who have a lot of empathy- understand when people are sort of looking at you in a way and you understand that your radar goes up like, okay, I'm going to turn, I call it turning on the charm button. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm going to put that mask on because I'm really good at that mask. And that way yes, everybody will be yes. okay. And nobody will be, you know, it diffuses scary situations. But um, I feel like behind the mask is where 
interesting things lie and where the danger lies and where the edge lies. And to me, the edge is the edge is where really fascinating things happen and where you can break through and, uh, you know, create something new or reach out, reach somebody new. I, I find what I teach playwriting. Yeah. And I find one of the things that I'm really combating, especially post pandemic, is that my writers do not want to put their uh, characters in danger. Interesting. Yeah, it is. They're very resistant to um, not even just conflict. It's like, you know, a character has to change from the beginning to the end yeah. they, or or something. Some shift has to happen. But they're so I think because people are feeling really vulnerable right now and sort of like protective, you they, they put it into their characters. And, and uh, that huh. interests me. And the reason I love to teach, I teach both acting and playwriting. Is because I learned so much. And then yes. I look back at my work and I say, wow, am I doing that? Am I kind of protecting these characters when I should just like amp up the problems? And that actually, the, the last play I wrote, um, Beheading Columbus, I really realized that I had picked an incredibly um, controversial topic and I was kind of soft footing yes, it. You did. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to go, for, I'm really going to just go for it and see what happens because I can always pull back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, speaking of, you know, being a, um, a teacher as well as playwriting, you have a mentor or had a mentor at one point, Luis Sofaro. Oh, yes. You've credited him for helping you remain true to your authentic self as a writer. And he, so this has helped you find this sort of, or embrace this freedom. Yes. To sort of really think about what it means to be a human in the world. Like, how has that freedom changed the way you approach the work? What has that freedom sort of taught you? Yes. Well, I think Luis Alfaro is a genius, and I'm, that's, I'm not the only person to say that. He's also <laughs> one of the kindest, funniest, uh, dearest, uh, and and he's wry and he's, I mean, he's sarcastic. <laughs> We're, you know, I'm really lucky to call him a friend. And yeah. um, what he did for me he was one of the mentors on the first I got um, into a writer's circle mm -hmm. where they encouraged us to write a play. And I was really thinking, I really wanted to write this play about women in punk rock. But then I thought, oh, maybe maybe I should do something a little less, you know, out there because mm. I would felt like, oh, it's, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to take this risk. And Luis took one look at me. and was like, just do it. Just risk it. You know, who cares? You can always tear it up, cool. and just the 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 way that he approaches things—it's a warmth and and a helpfulness that I think people would be surprised. But I feel like playwrights are super generous. Luis has been generous with me with mm. opportunities, and um, Octavio Solis, who was is my hero. You know, he's like <laughs> one of the first plays that I saw where I was like, oh, "That's me! Oh my god, that's me! Oh my god!" Um, He's also super generous. He's yeah. like, they give opportunities. They yeah. reach back and pull forward. And so I think that's such a great example of what you have to do. Because, you know, that, that silly expression, lift all boats? Yes. It does. It yes. really does. And if you have an opportunity that you can't do and can find somebody to help, I feel like it's really your job to do that as well. Because you don't want to be the only. I yeah. never want to be the only. Yeah. You know, I feel like that... that that kind of competition, that what what that bread, especially, I mean, women, uh, you know, we're always like the only in a business setting or the yeah. only in a, you know, the only lawyer, the only female lawyer. And uh, I don't think that's healthy. I don't no. think that's healthy for me. And I, 
I don't think that's healthy for society if you're too, if you hold back and you have to nurture and you have to um, encourage people to be brave and also let them be themselves mm. and not be too, not be pushy with their process. You know, I mm. work with a lot of community members. It's my favorite thing. I work, um, I, I'm uh, the, the literary manager of uh, Breath of Fire Latina Theater Ensemble. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we work in um, Santa Ana in mm-hmm. what they call one of the, the California Healthy Places Index. It's like on the lowest lowest, uh, I think they call it quadrile Mm. of the Healthy Places Index. So it's a lot of community. It's people who don't necessarily have backgrounds in theater, but Mm. they come to our classes, which we provide for free. It's all, you know, free to them and we pay our artists. And my job is to help them tell a story and let them know that I'm not going to steal their story and that their story belongs to them and however they do it. But But I just kind of, I've taken people and just sort of, okay, we're just going to tell your story. And people love that. People enjoy being, and then, you know, because what really gives them fear is like, I don't know how. Okay, so here's the tool. Here's the format. Is that really what's scaring you? Is this is action and this is character and this is where the dialogue goes. And that just opens a little door. That's another thing is to kind of decentralize it from academia, you know, Mm. and let people tell their story without telling them that that's the wrong way to do it. Because there's lots of different types of storytelling. That's another thing about yeah. access and about, you know, representation. Yeah. Is sometimes the way a person tells a story isn't the way that people would think of, oh, that's how a story is told. Yeah. It's completely different, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, and now you're learning a different perspective. Well, and just because it hasn't been done doesn't right. mean exactly. it shouldn't be done. Exactly. Often that's the most exciting work when right. we're like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. I've never heard mm-hmm. anything like this before. Mm-hmm. That is such an amazing gift. I'm glad that you touch on the point about community, and I love the work that you're doing to bring more of the community into theater, provide mm-hmm. them more access to that. Outside of amazing organizations like that that are providing this sort of uh, access for communities. And I'm so lucky to have been a part of some myself in Mm -hmm. various ways. And I see that sort of transformative power that theater can be as a tool to kind of like help support or uplift communities Mm -hmm. in one way, shape or form. But outside of that, when we think about like the sort of commercial world of modern theater, you know, we're Where does that live with community today? There's a really interesting relationship with theater as it sort of evolved as this commercial artistic enterprise and how we're thinking about bringing audiences into work. Beautiful, beautiful question. Yeah, I feel we've really lost the plot with that because, you know, people say we don't have an audience, we're losing our audience. Um, We are... It's because, I mean, the very basic thing is the price point is too high. Mm. It's too high. Yes. And I understand that we have a union, which I'm very proud of. And I think, you know, you have to protect actors and make sure they're fed. Absolutely. I don't think people understand that actors only work a certain amount of time. So yeah. even that, if you think it's expensive and it's not considering how long that has to last. Yeah. Um, but the price point is too high. And sometimes it's too foreign. Yes. Yeah, it's it's too different. But that doesn't mean that if you bring somebody in, they won't love it. You know, I just think, how do we get them into the theater? How do we get people into the theater when the theater doesn't mean anything to people anymore? Mm. Or it's something that they do in high school, middle school, and then never touch again. Yeah. You know, or sometimes they never do it. Like, they never see it. They'll see only, they'll be lucky enough to maybe see what the Eddie tours, the educational tours. But even those have been cut off ever since... 
gosh, 2000, around 2008, it seems like nobody does Eddie tours anymore. So these yeah. kids aren't seeing anything, you know? Yeah. I, I wish I had a good answer, but I do know that one of the things is showing things people want to see. Showing them, I mean, where I work, South Coast Repertory does a pretty good job of mm. really picking a lot of different playwrights. And right now they're doing a piece for uh, a Korean family. They're doing a piece from a Persian point of view. Mm. Um, that's great. I mean, I feel like, and I know that it brings people in. I yeah. know it does. Yeah. Because... They're smart about market. I mean, they're a, they're very 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 wealthy theater company. <laughs> well, that helps. Yeah, that does help. And they're smart about marketing, though. Yeah, they'll market yeah. it to the people, and they'll come and they'll they'll bring their friends, and yeah. and then they'll donate because they see that it's sure. it's smart. It's really smart. When you have the money to invest on the stage. You also probably have the money to invest behind the scenes right. to ensure. Well, you know who gets the most the money in a theater? The development person, yes. who's the person who develops the audience. Yes. I was astonished by that, you know, because yes. we're trying to to build up Breath of Fire and get some grants so that we can kind of pay ourselves. And we really were like, whoa, we've never done development. Yeah. That's that's something else, you know. So how do we how do we reach our audiences? Yeah. Because right now it's word of mouth for us, but and that works because it's a small community, but yeah. I, I have aspirations to, I would really love to create a place for playwrights to come and uh, develop work. That's that's my big goal as a literary manager for them is I want to bring writers in. And I, yeah. like they used to do in New York where we've lost a lot of those companies too. Yes. I, I have that aspiration because I want more work. And I feel like the more, more work we can put out there, the more... Somebody will go, oh, there's a play about that. Oh, maybe I'll go see it, you know. I think yeah. that's really important is developing new voices. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. You know, you think of even in New York, like public theater, you think of here in L.A., Geffen Theater. Yes. They have these programs to develop work, but they're just trying so desperately to keep these the lights on yeah. for these programs. Yeah. And so, yeah, those opportunities are dwindling for yeah. development. I, just to play the skeptic for a minute on that, it's like I'm so glad that there is a representation mm -hmm. in that type of work, that we can see diverse faces, voices, and stories and ideas coming to stage or coming to right. light through any sort of medium of entertainment or artistic expression. Yet at the same time, is it so niche Mm -hmm. That there's never an opportunity for sort of mainstream appeal for any of that type of work. Like, because again, there's the business side of it, right? right. Like, 100%. you as a playwright or, you know, the actors or anyone that's involved in this work, like, can they ever truly sort of like sustain a living off of creating this type of work? That's a great question. Well, I think one of the things that needs to happen, I mean, we're in a very weird moment right now. Um, a lot of artistic directors of color have been brought to theaters and then they have not been supported mm -hmm. in a way that feels like, well, they just didn't have the experience. Of course they don't have the experience. If you're going to bring in on purpose people of color to do things, you must back them up mm -hmm. with, you know, you have to help them. You have to support them. You have to teach them sometimes. Yes. And that's okay. People will learn. Not everybody is born being Joe Papp or, you know, Oscar yeah. Eustace. They, they also learned, but they were given a chance to make mistakes. And I feel like one of the problems that we have is is one mistake and we're on the chopping block, you know. Mm. I feel, and I, I mean, up at uh, OSF at um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, there have been problems, you know. And yes. because it's, it's the, the culture 
was not embracing some of the changes, but, you know, the changes had to happen because not only was were there trying to be representation, but also because the theater itself was left with a huge debt. Yes. That the audience, the backstage audience doesn't quite understand all that. But there's a lot of there's a lot of balls to juggle in the air. Yeah. Um, and I, I yeah. Like, how do we get 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 it to not be so niche? Right. I mean, I know like uh, a lot of us watch Los Spookies and mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily that's not going to translate as much. You know who does a great job of it? Uh, hmm. Taika Waititi. Mm. You know, he I feel like that, that guy has got a brilliant take on things. I mean, he plays Adolf Hitler in Judge a Rabbit. Yes. He brings like these these va- I mean, diverse vampires. Yes. Right. Yes. Just organically diverse vampires. And then who becomes the star of that is Harvey Guillen, this completely yes. fantastic actor who you would never in a million years think, oh, that's going to be the breakout star. Huh. And he is because yeah. he's great. Yeah. Now, that's that's how you do representation. You give him a great role. You let him develop it. You give it, a, he, he, you give it to his identities. Yeah. You, you lean into the identities, but you also develop the story and yeah. audiences love him, yeah. right? Wednesday Adams, the girl who plays Wednesday Adams, yeah. um, she's also Latino. The family's Latino, yeah. but they're the Adams family, you know? Yeah. It, and yeah. that's a great, point to bring it in and people love it you know and then just like kind of in the background you sort of get the latini that in there um i think that's brilliant that's how i live my life i'm not walking around being i am latino and i'm always doing things that are latino i just am and if sometimes spanish comes out it comes out but i'm living my life you know and making mistakes and raising a kid and yeah and this is a really touchy topic for a lot of people because universality is kind of a dirty word because yes. it's not so much universality as it is um, opening up to other people's stories. And yeah. maybe you do find connection somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a singular point of view connection, right? And and universality generally means like, you know, the white man's perspective when you really think about it. And which is, but there's been some beautiful things come out. Like I said, my favorite playwright is Tom Stoppard. Yeah. Uh, and you know why? Because not only is he a wordsmith, which is, which, like I said, I'm completely attracted to, he's also an immigrant. Yes. He comes from an immigrant point of view. He didn't, English wasn't his first language. And that's what I love to explore. Like, how yeah. does he become who he is? How does, yeah. how do I become who I am? I'm changed by the circumstances of my life. I'm changed by growing up in the Bay Area. Yes. You know, that brought punk rock into my life, which is yes. probably more important than anything. Yeah. Right. I don't know. It's really tough. It's, it's like, I don't want the show to be so universal that it's pablum, which I think happens a yes. lot. Yes. It's got to have, it's got to be complicated. And people, I think people will come in like, I, like I said about what we do in the show. <laughs> it's really complex, right? And yeah. you just sort of let in on it. Um, well, I think it's so interesting. You mentioned Tom Stoppard. Like, I think of, you know, playwrights that I've always admired throughout the years, like Eugene O'Neill, yeah. right? Because talk about, like, family conflict and right. drama and tension and all these things. To me, those feel universal, right? Like, right. again, not to use the dirty word there, but right, it's like right. those feel like themes that a lot of us can find an yes. entry point into. And those types of shows are such a great example of like, well, why does the family on stage need to be from a a specific cultural background? Like we can build new tension into this without even ever acknowledging it just through the work alone. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree. Like that, that might be a really interesting space for us to continue to sort of 
seek a, a way forward right. in that regard. Right. Although I will say, I, I I think some of us do find comfort in like our stories for us. Uh, I mean, there is a space for that for everybody. For everybody, yeah. You just I I remember, like I said, the first time I saw myself on like literally a Latina woman on stage who wasn't yeah. um, suffering. I thought to myself, okay. That's exciting to me. That's yeah. really I ooh. Oh my gosh. I I always used to joke about like I love Wonder Woman. I love Wonder Woman. I'm obsessed with Wonder Woman. <laughs> because as a young girl, she was the only dark-haired person on television. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. You know, and so that started yeah. my obsession and I didn't know that when I was little, but I I realized now it's like yeah, because she was you. Like you uh, saw yourself in Diana Prince, you know, because yeah. She was, yeah. And then she turns out to be Latina, which I love. Yes, totally. <laughs> Dumb, I was waiting for that part. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I love it. Uh, all right. Well, one last question that I was so curious about, because you've talked about some amazing plays, some really phenomenal references here. What work are you seeing from your peers today in the industry that you just are celebrating that oh, you want to get behind. Yeah. Oh, one of the p- plays I'm most excited about, there's a playwright named Dylan Chito, who is um, Isleta Pueblo uh, Native American. Yeah. He's got this beautiful two-hander called Pueblo Revolt. Okay. That is about, um, it's definitely about a historical event, a Native American historical event, but one of the characters is gay. The other character is his brother. Mm-hmm. It's a very much a relationship of that and uh. very modern in the way that one character is dealing with falling in love with a Spanish boy, mm. which is forbidden because he's a native and the Spanish yes. are dangerous. It's so beautifully rendered. And wow. then the conflict with the brother and who the brothers. I mean, that play knocks me out. It's uh. so beautiful. And. I'm not a boy and I'm not <laughs> native and I love it. Um, and a Thanksgiving play, that's another native play that I saw. Oh, wow. Was that a good I play? I really want to see that it's so show good. You, so You badly. have to see it. It's, I mean, not only is it funny, it's so pointed. Yes. And what you say about like, how do we bring the audience in? I mean, they everybody was laughing and I bet you they all went home and went, oh, Oh shit! Totally. Oh, excuse me. Safe space. Oh, totally. I want to yeah. see that so badly. Oh, it's I love so it. good. It's so good. Yeah, uh, uh, Lynn uh, Nottage. Um, oh gosh, I saw Twilight Los Angeles. Did yes, you see that? It I was. Did. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I love the work in that because of the examination and yes. how. And what really excited me was that Anna Devere Smith uh, rewrote. You know, I love yes, that. Like I it's love a that. fluid form. Yes, I remember the night I went, I went to her in previews and they were still, they still had fresh pages in oh, their I hands from that. like that day. Isn't that exciting though? I love that moment. And like, there's the magic the of actors. There's yes. the magic of actors. Yes. They take those papers and make you forget they're holding papers in their hand, right? Yes. Oh, I love, I love actors. I'm crazy about them. They're lucky to have you. We're all lucky to have you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so grateful for you for that. And thank you for this conversation. Oh, this, this has been so terrific. Much fun. Yeah. <laughs> really, really fun. Wonderful. Diana's take on representation means being able to see more of the story, not just the tragedy porn of typecasting Latina women beyond the North American Anglo gaze of other. Playing in two languages, Diana conveys something about alienation, being unable to understand, feeling like an outsider or unwelcome, in spaces we all share. In essence, Diana creates art that doesn't pander to one audience, but shows the complex multi-dimensionality of her own experience and that of the characters she creates. 
She leverages discomfort as a valuable tool for an artist to use, helping audiences make meaning of what they see on stage as they put themselves in the lives of her characters. What role does discomfort play in our lives and in our communities? Can we get more out of that feeling of being uneasy? I think we can, because it forces us to become more situationally aware, more conscious of others and their needs, and more open to reaching for deeper connections. Now, we talked a lot about identity in this conversation, and one of the books that I brought up was called Covering by the brilliant author and legal scholar Kenji Yoshino. I just have to say that when I first read this book, it touched me on a very personal level. Yoshino is a beautifully expressive writer who infused this book and all of his books with stories from his own past that offer so much emotional context to the material. While this book is almost 20 years old, at this point, it is far from being considered dated. All of us everywhere, from our stages and screens to our communities and homes, are still faced with pressures to conform and hide our authentic selves. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.